0: Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order.
1: Unfortunately, the word dissociation has one meaning in psychology, and that's our general understood meaning when we dissociate ourselves from a group or from some experience or from a memory. And in the field of biology, it has a completely different meaning, and it refers to extreme shock in the sense that you're possibly leaving your body. So that's a very, very different meaning. The first one is psychological. The second one is a physiological shock-related shift. The word is also used in chemistry to mean something completely else, and the original use of the word was in sociology to refer to people who had changed their church. So when you're hearing me use the word dissociation, unless I say otherwise, I'm talking about the neurological phenomenon where dopamine release is inhibited in the motor area and the energy in the spine stands still, the energy in the legs runs backwards on the lateral, anterior, lateral side, and so on. So when I'm using the word dissociation, I'm talking about a neurological mode.
2: Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. Today, my guest is J.J. Hadlock. Now, J.J. is a longtime acupuncturist. She's a professor at the Five Branches College of Chinese Medicine. She did her bachelor's in biology, and she's got a lifelong interest in physics. In addition to that, she plays multiple musical instruments. And she's got some really interesting insights in working with Parkinson's. She is the founder and director of the Parkinson's Recovery Project, and that's the focus of our conversation today. JJ, really delighted to have you here on Everyday Acupuncture.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, great. So let's start with what clued you into this path of looking into researching and treating Parkinson's.
1: It was the furthest thing from my mind, and three people with Parkinson's who were not taking medication yet, all recovered very quickly when I treated them in a way that got rid of some strange electrical currents that were running backwards in their legs. Okay. So, I didn't believe what I'd seen, and I assumed that they had all been misdiagnosed.
2: Mm-hmm. Because uh, supposedly Parkinson's is incurable, right?
1: Which it is a word that I have come to find means that Western doctors can't cure it. It turns out, like with so many other illnesses, people recover now and then. But MDs don't know how to initiate a change that will bring that about. For example, in schizophrenia, we're taught that that's incurable. I also teach psychology and counseling, so I am uh, studying this field a lot. And it turns out that 25 people diagnosed with schizophrenia recover. Isn't that interesting? Wait, how many? 25%.
2: 25%? Yep. Actually recover?
1: Completely recover. Uh-huh. And it turns out it's very similar to recovering from Parkinson's in the... most of the work has to be done by the patient himself. No amount of counseling or therapy usually will do it. It's a change that the patient has to undertake in changing the way he thinks about things. Now, I've already said that my first three patients recovered very quickly. They turned out to be in the 5% of people with Parkinson's who can recover quickly. 95% need to do some very basic psychological reprogramming before they're able to recover.
2: Are you suggesting that Parkinson's is a psychologically induced illness?
1: Great question, because that gives me a chance to say that Parkinson's is more and more used as a wastebasket term for movement disorder that we don't know what else to call it.
2: Right, because there's no specific test. There's, there's no test. There, there's a number of symptoms, and then if you give certain drugs and they respond, they go, that's Parkinson's.
1: Right. So we have a problem called drug-induced Parkinsonism, and that can be from using bad street drugs, and it can also be triggered by long-term use of antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs. A lot of drugs cause Tardive Parkinsonism, which means maybe you've quit the drug 10, 20, 30 years ago, but then the Parkinson's symptoms will show up as you start getting older, and those are cases where it comes from brain damage. The treatments I've found don't help with that type of Parkinson's disease. So if it's drug-induced or toxin-induced, so you get exposed to a terrible neurotoxin and after that you can't move,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and that's usually faster onset... Those things aren't treatable by my methods, but what I've found is people with idiopathic Parkinson's disease, which means they can't figure out an origin, there is no logical reason for the Parkinson's, for those people, 95% of them have a very specific mental approach towards life that necessarily will cause Parkinson's eventually.
2: Fascinating how does this, how do people fall into this kind of a stance of life? Is this stuff learned in family? Is-
1: in fact, I was uh, contacted back in the 1990s by uh, Boston University that was doing the first big identical twin genetics study. on. They were using Parkinson's for that because they assumed that Parkinson's was genetic because, for example, the demographic in the U.S. that's most likely to have Parkinson's is the Amish community and the Mennonites. So the thinking from the biologists was, well, this speaks to inbreeding, so it's obviously a genetic thing. But what they found with the study, and this is why they contacted me, they found that if one identical twin has Parkinson's, the other is less likely than the national average to have Parkinson's.
2: All right, that's a little bit weird then.
1: So that's a little bit curious. Yeah. So, but it's easy to explain because since you see it in families and you see it in cultures, you see it a lot in northern Japan, you see it a lot in England and Scotland, northern cold countries, you don't see it so much in Italy, you don't see it in cultures where there's terrific trust in the universe or the system you don't see much Parkinson's so the reason you're seeing it in the twins that way is that a family might have a culture of stiff upper lip don't show your pain hold it in but if you are the subordinate identical twin there's almost always a dominant and a subordinate. The subordinate identical twin actually has a very different social setting because even though the rest of the family is saying stiff upper lip, this subordinate twin can go to the twin for comfort. Mm. So within the genetic context, you don't see it. So it's not like a straight genetic factor. If you have this allele, you're going to have a certain shaped nose, but you do see some genetics factors that are more common in Parkinson's than in the general population. I suspect that those factors are associated with intelligence. You will never meet a stupid person with Parkinson's. There's also other factors.
2: So, so you're saying that people with Parkinson's tend to be more highly intelligent,
1: not only highly intelligent, there's been fascinating studies done for, um, nearly 20 years on the Parkinson's personality. Another factor, no, this is funny because most people don't think of this as a genetic trait, but spiritual fervor, not a particular religion per se, but spiritual fervor is a genetic trait. It's linked in identical twins, and it's extremely common in Parkinson's, maybe one of the dominant personality traits. And I have patients who are atheists, but they will still talk about their strong moral compass. And they know what's right, and people should do what's right. That kind of talk.
2: So a value system that really has some rights and wrongs to it.
1: Powerful value system, very high intelligence. And those are the genetic factors. But whether or not those things get triggered in a way that leads to Parkinson's can be related to the environment that triggers certain genes. There's a whole new study genetics now where we're starting to realize that whether or not a gene expresses might be due to environmental causes. Oh, yes,
2: all this epigenetic stuff. It's Yes, it's it, called
1: epigenetics. Yeah. And a lot of people think when you say environment, they think smog or dirty water. But as a biologist, environment means everything that influences you from your parents, your siblings, the kind of schools you go to, The music you listen to, everything is considered environmental and environmental influences can influence epigenetics. It can influence the way your genes work. So in Parkinson's what we really see, and getting back to the genetic study from Boston, I would just said the reason you see it less in identical twins is the younger twin has someone from whom they can get comfort, someone in front of whom They do not need to be strong. And the gentleman was so delightful. He emailed me and he said, Yes, but my grant is for finding a genetic reason for Parkinson's. So that doesn't help me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. So there we go. So there are strong genetic components, but they, they have nothing to do with the Parkinson's per se. They have to do with the ability to summon up the enormous mental attitude that is required to develop Parkinson's in the 95%.
2: I'm curious to hear more about that. the, The thought, well, okay, as a clinician doing the work that I do, I see lots of people, especially with digestive issues, mm-hmm. and it's so often from, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, stress, because that, that's the way we talk about it, mm-hmm. that stress leads to upset stomachs and you know all kinds of digestive issues. And, and I think in our culture, we're all pretty cognizant that That lots of stomach aches and bowels that don 't work quite well is because people are upset emotionally or something emotionally is going on that's I, I would say that 's in the in the common vernacular you
1: mm-hmm. know as far
2: as people 's understanding of how the mind and the body work together mm-hmm. but it seems like it 's an even larger step here, at least for me at the moment, I'm so glad we're having this conversation for me at the moment it 's a larger step to go wow, could our outlook on life actually land us in in a situation where we've developed this shaking disorder?
1: Yes. You're talking about stomach stress. That's a good way to lead into this. Most people in our culture spend too much of their time in what we call neurologically sympathetic mode. Mm. It's called fight or flight mode and it's where You're edgy, you're ready to fight all the time, or run, something. People in Parkinson's don't do that so much. And in the West, we recognize that there are two neurological modes. One is when you're relaxed and happy, parasympathetic, and the other is sympathetic. And Western thinking says that you're always somewhere between those two modes. Chinese medicine recognizes that there are four neurological modes. They're extremely different. The electrical currents in your body run completely differently in each of these modes.
2: Great. Let's hear more about that.
1: Okay. So, parasympathetic in the Chinese system, in the great book of the ancient 2,000-year-old book of Chinese medicine, the Neijing, is described as the neurological mode that keeps you close to the divine. Sympathetic mode allows you to flee from danger. The third mode is sleep The fourth mode is that which allows you to cling to life. What we in the West would call severe shock or pre-mortal injury, where maybe you've lost a lot of blood, excessive perforation of the skin, severe shock, you are very likely going to die. In this condition, you actually perceive yourself as if you are outside of your body looking at yourself. We all hear about the surgeries where the patient says afterwards, "I watched the whole thing from the ceiling." Right. It's that kind of thing, and the reason for that it's called dissociation, or at least was when I was in medical school, is because of this quality of being outside of your body. And what people, most people, are somewhere in between sleep, parasympathetic, or sympathetic. We don't use pre-death out-of-the-body shock much. People with Parkinson's use it all the time. They live in it.
2: How do people slip into this kind of a state? If, if the normal state is sympathetic, parasympathetic, or sleep, and we've reserved this cling-to-life shock for these extreme moments, how do people slip into and then, as a primary mode, inhabit that?
1: Many of my patients remember doing it while staring into a mirror, commanding themselves to feel no pain. Often it was emotional pain, might be physical pain, whatever it was, they have the enormous mental focus and intelligence to be able to command themselves to feel no pain. When they do this, they aren't intending to slide into dissociation mode. However, dissociation is the only neurological mode in which one has no pain. As we say in the West, mortal injuries don't hurt. Mm. And that's true because mm-hmm. when a body shifts into dissociation, enormous amounts of endorphins are released, just like taking heroin. It's great, no pain. So if you have this shift where your body says, okay, you want to feel no pain? We'll do this. But the problem is we now can't move. And the body says, that's not an issue. Any of the other three neurological states can have a simultaneous adrenaline override if you trigger sympathetic mode. So a person with Parkinson's can move and appear to be perfectly normal in the world but they brush their teeth with adrenaline, they tie their shoes with adrenaline. They don't use parasympathetic mode. They simply don't use it. Now let me back up because there's exceptions to everything. Many people with Parkinson's will say things like but I can move perfectly normally when I'm at my easel or when I'm playing the violin or on my birthday or in a certain restaurant so it, you see it's very much mentally driven many people with parkinson's I had one patient who could always move normally and the tremoring would cease when she was doing laundry and I said well what's up with that she says well laundry is so good you know you're getting things clean you're getting things the way they should be now this person doesn't have a religious affiliation but when you hear in the speech she's making a strong moral judgment here When I'm doing laundry, I am being good. And so then she would not have any symptoms during laundry. But as soon as the laundry is over, she would have to go back to the way she is. I have many patients who don't have symptoms when they get home from work and have dinner and then they sit in a chair at the end of the day. And I'll say, why don't you have Parkinson's at the end of the day? And they'll say, well, because then I've finished my work and I'm off. Again, it's this terrific sense of I need to be able to perform, I need to do my job. So you have a person who has instructed themselves to be dissociated or to feel no pain or to have an extreme version of a stiff upper lip and then they override it with sympathetic mode which requires the person to imagine that they are in a state of emergency.
2: So they're constantly pulling on their adrenals to
1: exactly
2: create the adrenaline.
1: Right. And this is where so much of the Parkinson's personality kicks in. Because they must have adrenaline to move, over the years they develop a kind of mindset that says, if it weren't for me, everything would be going to hell in a handbasket. So by putting themselves in a position where so much is riding on them, they are able to sustain a certain level of adrenaline all the time because it's crucial. If it weren't for me, what? The bills wouldn't get paid or the business would fall apart or something. Yeah, Every person has their own way of doing it, but they tend to have this feeling. If it weren't for me. And that helps them to sustain this sense of emergency. Sadly, it eventually becomes a sense of anxiety. And it also leads to slowly a complete inability to feel joy. And I've said to many of my patients when they first meet, what gives you joy? And they'll just stare at me like, what kind of a moron what, yeah, what am I? What kind
2: of stupid question is that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and one person, um, a university professor in writing said, Joy? I don't think I even know the meaning of the word.
2: Okay, so you're talking about using adrenaline for movement. What's usually used for movement?
1: Dopamine. Dopamine. There are, two, there are two teams of neurotransmitters in the body. And adrenaline is the captain of one of the teams and dopamine is the captain of the other. And most of us are always using both. So if your heart's going, you're using some adrenaline. If like the ballet dancer Najinsky, you are leaping into the air and just staying suspended so that the conductor is having to hold his baton until you come down? That's dopamine. Magic Johnson did the same thing, that's why he was called magic. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter when we feel weightless, when the music just flows from us, when the poetry is there, when we are in almost a state of grace. That's dopamine. Most of us are somewhere in between. We're using some adrenaline and some dopamine.
2: So is, would you say dopamine is the joy neurotransmitter?
1: Yes. It's also called the neurotransmitter of addiction. The reason that cigarettes, opiates, um, Twitter, cocaine, email. Co- no, no, no. no. <laughs> well, hang on. Yes, we can go there. Um, there there's five of them. It's nicotine opiates, cocaine, methamphetamine, and the opioids, the heroin group. Those five groups, the reason that they are addictive is because they elevate dopamine levels. They either increase the release of dopamine or they slow down the inhibition of dopamine. Mm -hmm. So that's why they are so addictive. And when you talk about using our Uh, Facebook too much or, or Twitter. Yes, dopamine is also called sometimes the neurotransmitter of curiosity. It's the neurotransmitter that keeps a chicken pecking at the little pebbles on the ground because maybe the next one has a worm under it. So that's the neurotransmitter that drives that. And that's the same behavior that is getting tickled when we have constant stimulation for our mind. We love that. And that's, it brings forth dopamine in the brain because we have a constant expectation that something good might show up that we like. And the release of dopamine is expectation dependent. So if you are constantly expecting that the world's going to hell in a handbasket if you don't stay completely alert, that is not an expectation of joy. No. So, your dopamine is inhibited in multiple ways. It's inhibited because you're in dissociation mode, which automatically inhibits dopamine, for good reason. If you're in shock, you don't want to be doing something foolish. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, because you are training your brain to be wary and always thinking in terms of harm avoidance, you are also inhibiting dopamine release.
2: Okay, so... This is so fascinating for me, partly because I, I don't know a whole lot about Parkinson's.
1: Uh, oh, let me just throw something out. Yeah. Since the 1960s, Parkinson's disease has been considered a pr- illness of insufficient dopamine. And then to a very great extent, that's correct. But the assumption has been that it's due to some kind of brain damage or brain disease or something physical. That is destroying a person's ability to make dopamine.
2: Exactly. This, this is the perspective that, that I've had. Not, not right. so unlike someone's pancreas who doesn't work so well. Now they're not producing insulin.
1: Right. But in fact, we know now that by, when a person is diagnosed with Parkinson's, and there's very new research on this, anyone can go online and find this, the dopamine inhibition in their brain is not happening On a cellular level, they still have more than enough ability to create more than enough dopamine, but their brain won't use it.
2: So are you saying that that the dopamine is there, but the brain's not picking up on it?
1: The brain will not release it.
2: It will not release it. It has the potential, but it won't release it. Exactly. And so from your perspective and the work you're doing, why is it not being released?
1: So what's exciting is Western medicine is starting to recognize that these people do have enough dopamine. I'm going to answer your question in a minute. First, I'm going to say that autopsy studies show that there is a lot of damage and missing dopamine cells in the substantia nigra. But in fact, people who have been taking the medication can have that type of brain damage, so it's very likely that the damage you see in autopsies of people who've had Parkinson's for a long time, that brain damage is actually coming from their medications. So now back to your question, I hope you wrote it down, because I don't remember exactly your wording, if you could go back.
2: Yeah, I didn't write it down either. It would, let's see, it was something to the effect of... uh...
1: Why aren't they releasing it? Again, dopamine release is expectation dependent. You have to be feeling... Not just good. There's a particular type of feeling that releases dopamine. Get ready for this. I'm sitting down. Okay. The feeling that is most likely to release dopamine is, A, a feeling of safety no matter what. And secondly, a diminished sense of separation between oneself and everything else. So you can call that nature. You can call it the other, as the Canadian nature writer Farley Mowat used to call it just the other. Some people could call it God. You could call it universal love. But to the degree that one has a diminished sense of separation between themselves and that vast loving other, is the degree to which they feel safe and the degree to which their brains will release dopamine.
2: I'm just going to hang with this for a moment here mm-hmm. um, and just and just noodle on this a bit.
1: Okay.
2: And I just want to see if I can tie, tie together something, a couple strands that are just kind of floating loose for me at the moment. Okay. So... The release of dopamine, then, Mm -hmm. could be seen as a byproduct, side effect, or just emergent phenomena that naturally arises out of a sense of safety and a sense of connectedness with the greater world and universe.
1: Right. Yes.
2: So... I'm not trained in biology the way that you have been, and I know that there's some very reductionist ways of thinking about this. Oh, no dopamine equals this problem here. I've often kind of turned it around and, and looked at neurotransmitters, hormonal interactions, all this kind of thing, and instead of looking at it from the point of view of these things are causing something, looking at it from the point of view that there are these other things going on in the presence or absence of neurotransmitters, hormones, other kinds of chemicals that go running around in our brains and bodies are a reflection. They're not necessarily a cause.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Neurotransmitters are the response to our thoughts and our feelings.
2: So you just said response. They don't cause our thoughts and feelings. Correct. They're the response of our thoughts and feelings. Right. Well, that just turns a lot of Western medicine on its ear, doesn't it?
1: Well, Western medicine is is turning on its own ear, really, because um, it's been turning for a long time. As I said, I do teach psychology and counseling, and back when I was a young girl, the brain was a switchboard, and you had thoughts based on the way it was wired. And I've lived long enough to see that completely reversed to now where we have book titles, um, the new brain, the brain that changes itself, all these kind of things, and it turns out that the brain is physically created as a response to our thoughts. This suggests that our thoughts exist outside the brain, which is fine because again, think back to that example of the person watching the surgery from the ceiling. His, he was having thoughts. He wasn't using his brain to have them. His brain was flatlining. So, right, what you're saying is there is a consciousness, and it may go with you whether you have a body or not, but it is the thoughts generated by that consciousness, which you can control if you bother to, which in turn makes your brain behave the way that it does. Or you can be completely passive and let your past habits and your external experiences shape your brain for you. And then, really, you're an automaton. But a lot of people do that because a lot of people don't realize the extent to which they can decide how to think. But, yeah, the new thinking in physiology, and we're finding this more and more, is that our thoughts shape our brain and not the reverse.
2: And our thoughts shape our neurobiology. Yes, not the other way around.
1: Right. Here's an interesting example of that. In the new field of neurotheology, which is so cool that I can hardly believe such a field exists. And it's
2: so new I've never even heard of it until just now.
1: Okay. And um, you prob- you may have heard some of the book titles by some of the top players in the field, uh, Andrew Newberg, who wrote Why God Won't Go Away and how God changes the brain. And these are studies done usually using MRIs and things to look for areas of brain activity. And what they have found is what you think about God and the type of God you have is reflected in what part of your brain is activated when you think about God. Or they, they do this with Children, and they have found that all children have the exact same place in their brain activated. They don't use the word God. But when they just say, you know, think about whatever it is that makes everything in the universe. So we're using a very religion-neutral vocabulary. But still, the same area in the cerebellum lights up with all kids when you ask them to think about that which makes everything or where does all where does love originally come from? You can word it so many ways, and then as you become an adult and have a specific religious path, um, different parts of your brain will light up depending on if you have a verbal relationship with the divine, if you have what a fear based religion, if you have a religion that is based on feeling, so wordlessly experience the feelings of a connectedness to the divine. That's a completely different part of the brain. So it's delightful to study this. And it turns out dopamine release happens from the striatum. It's a part of the brain towards the front, just behind the frontal lobe. That's where dopamine is stored. And that's the place from which dopamine is released when one expects joy. And that part of the brain is activated. Increasingly, as one feels an increasing sense of closeness with the other, or love, or the universe. So as one sense of separation between self and the universe diminishes, it's the striatum that is activated, and that in turn is the area that then releases dopamine. So you start to see how this is starting to have a relationship with parkinsons
2: because if you're not releasing dopamine um dopium if you're not <laughs> dop-
1: <laughs> dopium
2: same thing yeah, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> i never quite put it together that way yeah yeah so if you're not releasing the the uh, dopamine
1: if you're not if you're feeling alone and apart
2: then dopium is not Is not making its way into your chemical mix.
1: Right. If you're primarily on risk assessment mode, then you're not going to be able to release dopamine into the motor areas and into the thoughts areas. However, what's interesting, and this is a study that was done back in 2002, they were able to prove that people with Parkinson's disease actually have excessively high levels of dopamine in the risk assessment area of the brain. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's used for a lot of things. So it can be movement-based and thought-based, but it's also the neurotransmitter used for risk assessment. And in people with Parkinson's, they have way more dopamine than average. And it's being used in the risk assessment area of the brain, which is over to the sides. It's not in the frontal lobe. So what you see in Parkinson's it's they've got plenty of dopamine. But look at where they're choosing to use it.
2: They're using it to stay in that in that parasymp. I'm sorry in that sympathetic state. They're using it yes. to stay in that just that I'm in danger.
1: Yes, they state. need that because without that they don't have the adrenaline and because their underlying situation is that they have numbed themselves to physical and emotional pain they need to stay in that emergency state. Now I want to say something because many people say to me, how dare you say that Parkinson's people don't feel physical and emotional pain because my loved ones with Parkinson's are the most loving, kind people that I know. So let me be very clear. A person with Parkinson's is numbed to his own physical and emotional pain. He may be one of the most loving humans in the world, when it comes to caring about other people's pain and wanting to do something about it. It is his own physical and emotional pain to which he has made himself numb. And I must tell you, I do get hate mail from people saying, how dare you say that about my loved ones with Parkinson's? But from people with Parkinson's, I get emails saying, I thought nobody knew
2: Oh, my goodness.
1: I've never gotten hate mail from people with Parkinson's. It comes from their doctors or their friends or loved ones. But the people with Parkinson's say, Oh, Oh. my God, I am so busted. I am so busted. I thought nobody could know. And... That's very interesting how many times I've heard that because what am I describing here? I'm describing a person who feels separated from the rest. And part of the illusion of that separation is nobody knows. Is
2: this part of the entree into helping people recover?
1: Yes. Because if you know what's causing the problem, you just need to stop doing it. Easier said than done. And what most of my work has been doing for the last 15 years is figuring out the 5% of people whose electrical currents are running backwards because of a foot injury, that's easy to fix. turns out having a severe foot injury can cause electrical currents in the body to run in the same pattern that's used when a person is in severe shock. So you can get Parkinson's either from a foot injury that's causing your electrical currents to run backwards after 40 or 50 years. Or you can develop Parkinson's from a mental attitude of pretending to be in shock after 40 or 50 years. The the reason it takes so long is because most people are able to use adrenaline to override the Parkinson's. What takes 40 or 50 years is for a person to get tired of the false sense of emergency and the adrenaline. It's when adrenaline levels start to diminish that the symptoms of Parkinson's appear. The underlying immobility that's been there right along begins to appear when the mortgage is paid off or the youngest child graduates from college, or whatever thing it was that the person was using to make themselves stay so driven. So that's why it takes so long to develop it, is because as long as you're young and healthy, you can keep imagining risks.
2: Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. This makes me think uh, I'm going to I'm I'm not sure if I'm shifting this a little bit, but this makes me think about people that I see in my clinic. Now a lot of folks when they get acupuncture, they just they just kind of let go and they, they, they drift into this quiet place, and it's very pleasant and it's very peaceful and safe. And um, you know, and, and, and people will often comment on it and they feel it's like, "Wow, it just feels so great. And there's other people that I come into the room, their eyes are cranked wide open, their fingers are drumming on the table. They it 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 just doesn't seem to have touched them at all. Which is and that's always a curiosity for me why so many people will go almost immediately into this quiet state and other there's other folks, it's like they never get there. Could these be the people that are so used to running on adrenaline and in such a need of adrenaline that they get anywhere close to moving into a parasympathetic state? It's just it's terrifying
1: it could be there's there are so many possibilities involved first off one of the reasons people go into that very parasympathetic state with acupuncture is as i mentioned very much earlier one of the things that can trigger parasympathetic is getting out of dissociation bear with me for a minute when a person dissociates so they've been in shock, severe shock. And then as they come out of it, they go into deep parasympathetic mode before getting back to their normal daily blend. So you see this in hospitals when someone's pulled back from the brink of death and then they, they're sort of in this state of bliss for a couple of days. What we do with acupuncture very often, we can do two things. If we use too many needles, we are actually inducing dissociation and many patients have uh, will say, During their acupuncture session, I felt like I was floating outside my body. Now, remember, excessive perforation of the skin is one of the key things that induces dissociation. In the wild, when a predator sticks his claws into an animal, that animal slides into dissociation. He feels no pain. He's out of his body. We do that same thing with acupuncture to a large extent. If you're putting in more than four needles you very well may be causing your patient to slide into a mild degree of dissociation they're able to lay very still and imagine themselves almost out of their body and then they calm down there's no trauma because their brain is always trying to negotiate the shock and you take the needles out and they slide into this state of deep parasympathetic mode now another alternative is maybe you only use a few needles but they're in the extremities Having increased blood flow and energy in the extremities is characteristic of parasympathetic mode. So you put the heat lamp on their feet, getting more blood into the extremities. You put needles in their fingers, toes, ankles, again, working the extremities. You are just jerking the person physically into a state where their brain says, oh, so much energy in the feet. We must be in parasympathetic mode. Cool. And so there also you can have parasympathetic, but you've gotten to it from a different approach. Then again, there are people who are very wary. They don't want to be relaxed. And even when you do these same techniques to them, as I said earlier, sympathetic mode can override all the other modes. For example, you might be sound asleep, and suddenly there's this big noise, and you jump up and your heart is pounding. And even though it was only the raccoons in the trash can, Your heart's still pounding for another 10 minutes. Your muscles are weak. Technically, if you looked at your electricity patterns, most of your patterns are still in sleep mode. Most of your blood is in your liver. But if you needed it, you could be in sleep mode on some level and doing an adrenaline-based lunge for the back door at the same time. So when you have a patient who's very edgy and they're always in a high degree of risk assessment, then they're using sympathetic mode no matter what you do, whether you're just dis- causing them to dissociate because you've put in 10 acupuncture needles or you're causing them to be in sympath- parasympathetic because you put the heat lamp on their feet. If they've got sympathetic mode going strongly enough, they will stay in that mode. Does that help?
2: Yes. It, well, it helps and it just gives me a whole lot to chew on as well. So I appreciate that. Um.
1: You know, one thing, I just want to add this on the podcast. Mm-hmm. The, this approach, the, understanding the physiology behind Chinese medicine is not taught in the schools. So if someone is listening to this and they're saying, oh, I'm going to ask my acupuncture about these different neurotransmitters and these different neurological modes, their are acupuncturists. There's a good chance they don't know any of this. It's, it's rather specialized and I do have a degree in biology and I've studied a lot in um, psychology and in physics and so I have a very different um, ability, and you're listening to me walking back and forth through these different realms from acupuncture to neurotheology. So I just want to let the audience know that it's not part of the training of an acupuncturist to even be familiar with these principles.
2: Although I would suspect that we've all been exposed to the very basic concepts because we've taken anatomy and physiology and, you know, there's some very basic stuff that we've been exposed to. But but like me, you know, I'm thinking Parkinson's is because we're not producing dopamine. And uh, so, yeah, my mind's been opened up to that now. <laughs> Thanks to you thank well thanks to you and your work. And and I also wanna let our listeners know. I'm gonna put your website out here right now. What is it? Is it pdrecovery.com?
1: Dot .org. org. It's a nonprofit. Yeah.
2: Okay. Pdrecovery.org. You have
1: Yeah, there's some- a schnook out there who named his thing PDRecovery.com, and he's really in it. It's weird money-making thing uh, odd. So be sure to go to pdrecovery.org. That's a non-profit with information about the latest findings in alternative medicine for treating Parkinson's disease. Everything on the website's available for free, including whole books available for free download.
2: Which is what I was just about to say. Yes, exactly. You have tremendous resources on there. Uh, One of the, I've not gotten all the way through your book because it's a Big old long book. I mean, it's an incredible resource. And I, and I really would recommend anyone who themselves uh, is, is staring a Parkinson's diagnosis in the face or anyone who has someone that they care about. This is really stuff to look at and consider and educate yourself with. One of the things that you talk about in your book is that it's possible to recover from Parkinson's without particularly using, I'm going to put this in air quotes, professional help.
1: Absolutely. It's a do-it-yourself project. It's a you do-it-yourself got yourself in- project. Yeah. You got yourself into this. You can get yourself out.
2: Tell us a little more about that. that. That just seems like such a contradiction compared to how most people think of a disease like Parkinson's.
1: Well, then again, having met so many hundreds of people with Parkinson's, I've had many of them say to me things like, I've known for a long time that there was something wrong with me or the way I live in the world, but I could never put a finger on it. So what you've got is their doctors and their friends saying, oh my gosh, you're losing dopamine. And what the patients themselves are saying is, here's another quote, I've read everything about Parkinson's in the books that I can get my hands on. Again, these people tend to be really smart. And it doesn't match how I feel inside. So, is that helpful?
2: It is it is helpful. And what I'm really struck by here is the the way that you're talking about the people that you've talked with that have Parkinson's. And how you really get them in a way that they go, oh, <laughs> I'm really seen here. We're not talking about looking at people through your your usual laboratory ways of looking at people. I mean, it sounds to me like you have, through your years of experience in really talking to people, learned something about Parkinson's from the people who have Parkinson's in a way that you just can't get it from studies or lab work or fMRIs
1: thank you for noticing that what I did from the beginning is interview my patients never less than an hour at a time, I wanted to know about their family life, I wanted to know about their home life, their thoughts, their hopes why are you a minister so many of my patients are professional religious priests, nuns, rabbis um, llamas every faith leaders in the faith as you possibly remember Polk, John Paul II had Parkinson's disease these are fascinating people and I wanted to know what was going on with them and it was I had been doing this study for some time and maybe this is where you're trying to go in your interview but you're being too polite to come out and say it um, I had been doing this work with Parkinson's and I'd seen many people recover before I was ever diagnosed with it myself ah Right. You might not have gotten to that stage in my book
2: yet. I had not gotten to that stage in your book yet. So you're speaking from a very very personal place here.
1: Uh, Yeah. Keep reading that book. It's in there. Um, But you don't get to that towards the end because, as one of my advisors on the committee points out, if you make this all about you, it's just about you.
2: It's an N of one study.
1: Yeah. But you've got to make it a big... It's got to be about everybody, and then your own case study is one of many. So... I'd already noticed an awful lot of similarities in my patients. You know, ostensibly they're all very different, but there were these underlying commonalities, and this is before I had known about the Parkinson's personality studies, which are very politically sensitive because you never want to be saying to a person, you caused this yourself. That's actually illegal. You can lose a lawsuit if you say to a patient, you brought this on yourself. It's called blaming the victim. And it gets you into big trouble, and you will be sued. So uh, even though doctors have done these studies showing that there's this very specific type of personality in Parkinson's, we call that research material. It is not clinical material. So we do tend to not share that with patients. Certainly your neurologist on the front lines isn't looking at his patient and saying, well, you brought this on yourself. You need to fix it. So Uh, that's not done so it's more of a research information but it was helpful for me because this information wasn't even known but doing thousands of hours of interviews with patients I saw a very definite pattern and the funny thing was I just felt like wow these are my people I totally get these people I completely understand I felt for the first time like I really found my tribe although of course I didn't have Parkinson's so then a few years later, when I was diagnosed with it, I thought, well, it's just doctor's disease because I'm spending all my time with these people. So I sat down and I'll say, I'll prove to me that it's only doctor's disease. I don't really have Parkinson's. I will write down all my symptoms and the dates when they first appeared. And I wrote up a list, and some of those dates were 10 years earlier, mm. a few of them were 15 years earlier. I just started having the festinating gait, you know, and the tremor and all those other things. But I'd come up with a list of hundreds of symptoms that are characteristic of Parkinson's that aren't in the main literature, but that were a commonality in my patients. And so I'm looking at this larger list and saying, shoot, you've been having these things coming with increasing uh, intensity for 10 to 15 years. So at that point, I said, oh, man, no wonder I understand these people so well. I is one. Yeah, I is one. But then I said, okay, well, how can I use this to advantage? How can I go deeper with this and help? Because I was already running up against people who, you fix all their injuries, but they had these weird negative thought patterns, including myself. Because my first response was, well, you've already seen people recover, so you know it's not an incurable illness. You should be happy. And the second response was, yes, yes but I won't be one of the lucky ones. And as I heard myself say that, I said a word that I'm not going to repeat. (laughs) And then I said, that's what your patients say who don't get better, and it always makes you angry. Why do they just assume off the bat, I will not be one of the lucky ones? And Because I had caught myself in the act of saying that, so I said, okay, that's weird. It's like, it's like I have two brains. One of them is this analytical, logical brain, and the other one is this n- weird little voice that is starting to sound more and more like a person with Parkinson's voice. What's up with that? Which one shall I listen to? So what I did instead is I wrote down all of my thought tendencies and patterns since I was a little kid. And then the next week, I saw the same collection of patients, but the questions I asked them were so different, and the answers I got were a lot different than because before I'd been talking mostly about symptoms. So I it just I opened my first interview after writing my own list, and I said, "Tell me about your childhood." And he said, "I don't think we need to go into that." And I said, "Okay, <laughs> check next." I mean, the, the similarities worse, got weirder and weirder. So at that point, I knew I was onto to something. And that's what led me to where all of this research and all of this study, studying the Western research on Parkinson's, studying the Western research on psychology, which oddly enough, the Western MDs and the people who are studying psychology and animal behavior and this kind of stuff, they never meet. I feel like I'm at the hub of a wheel and I have spokes going out in every direction, but I don't see anyone who's bringing all these things together and saying, what can we learn from animal behavior studies that are similar to what we see in people with Parkinson's? Well, animals, by the way, don't get Parkinson's. So any time you read a study about rats, and a Parkinson's study, it was rats who were given genetic or drug-induced Parkinsonism, and then they're testing stuff on those rats, but they don't have idiopathic Parkinson's. That's an aside.
2: Right. And you mentioned earlier on in this interview Mm -hmm. that toxicity-induced Parkinson's, drug-induced Parkinson's will not respond to this. Right. Right. That's a different animal, so to speak.
1: Right. We're looking primarily with idiopathic Parkinson's. It's people who never intending to do this, found themselves in a situation through physical injury or emotional trauma, thinking that it would be better if they were just numb. And they had the capacity to make it happen. And that's what's different.
2: I was just about to ask what's different, because I I think all of us have gone through experiences where we go, I don't want to feel that. I don't want that. All right i'm gonna I'm gonna sidestep my way around it
1: okay, so now I'll say something that might make half the people turn off their radio, but a lot of people have said to me things like, "This isn't the first lifetime I've had with parkinson's, and others have said things like, "I don't know where I got it, but i this I came into this world knowing that I could control my brain if I needed to. So you're talking about a small percentage of the population who has enormous capability for mental control and self-control. Maybe it's used incorrectly in the case of Parkinson's, but still there's that capacity. So again, when you look at, gee, there does seem to be some genetic commonalities in Parkinson's, I'm thinking this is where they need to look. And, And also what they find is people with these genetic traits that you see more frequently in people with Parkinson's Still, tons of people with those genetic traits never developed anything like Parkinson's. So there's epigenetics. It's having the capability and choosing to use it in a specific way.
2: And then continuing to do so for decade after decade after decade.
1: Well, once you've started it, you don't know how to turn it off.
2: So can you talk to us a bit about turning it off?
1: Okay. So I'll start with how an animal normally turns off dissociation. And this is a wonderful subject. Um in the field of wildlife rescue now, especially with the larger animals, the mammals, they will not release them into the wild until they have gone through a stage of shaking or tremoring. Because if they haven't gone through the tremoring stage, they are still in shock and they're not going to survive. They won't be able to even feed themselves when they're released. So, let's use that to segue into what are the biological steps necessary in getting over shock. and An example that a lot of humans can relate to is swimming in a really cold mountain lake. You get out, and your body, when you're in a really swimming cold place, it pumps up the adrenaline and it also does some electrical changes that are similar to shock because it takes your energy very deep interiorly away from the extremities. It does all kinds of changes that are similar, just similar and it makes you numb. You need to be numb to swim in that water. Oh boy. Right. So so there's some electrical changes that take place in the body, very similar to shock. And then you get out of the lake, and you're sitting there in the sun. And at some point, you realize that you're really shaking from the cold, is what you think. It's not really what you're shaking from. And then you look at yourself, and you go, Whoa, I'm shaking. Then there's an almost immediate mental process that either says, I'm cold, I need to get roar, I'm scary, or you say, I don't really need to be shaking anymore. If you choose the latter, I don't really need to be shaking anymore, then you take a deep breath in and a deep breath out, and a little frisson, a, a, a little shimmy, travels down from your back of your skull all the way down your spine, and the shaking stops. And that is the sequence that occurs naturally when a person needs to come out of shock. When they've been ter- sometimes you might even feel this coming out of a movie theater. If you saw something really scary, you get out and go, whoa, I'm shaking. Deep breath in, deep breath out. Oh, whoa. And then this little shiver goes down your spine, you go, whew. Mm-hmm. And for a second, for a fleeting second, you're in almost pure parasympathetic mode because what you've just done is turned back on your vagus nerve. And then, very quickly, your body recalibrates and gets you into your normal ratio of parasympathetic and sympathetic, dopamine and adrenaline, your blend.
2: You know, I'm really struck here. You you know, you're talking about the shaking and, and there's this, I think you used the term shake it off. And I think about how I've heard that phrase in various places, usually if there's been a fright, an injury... Mm-hmm. Uh, an emotional shock right mm-hmm. oh you hear it in sports right yep. oh, shake it off right yep. or yep. I, it, it shows up in all kinds of places shake it off and then it's and then it's gone it's behind you right if you don't shake it off it will stick it will stay. around
1: it will stick around now people with parkinson's when i walk them through this process They don't know what I'm talking about. And then when I say, get to the end, breathe in, breathe out, and have a little shake go, they just look at me and say, I can't do that. They also, when I give this example to you and you're going, oh yeah, I know what you mean, they'd stare at me and they say, I don't know what you're talking about.
2: So this is kind of a diagnostic.
1: Yeah, actually. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Or I couldn't do that. and. They might not be able to verbalize why not, but if you talk with them long enough, it's because they don't feel safe enough yet. Again, as I said, when you first notice you're shaking, your brain has to go through a quick assessment process and say, shoot, am I at risk here because I'm overly cold? Is hypothermia an issue or is it going to be okay now? And a person needs to be able to make the decision, I'm okay now, and what enables you to make that? A feeling of safety. And what gives you a feeling of safety is diminished sense of separation between self and the other. So maybe it's just your coach patting you on the back and saying, you did great sport. That was cool. Shake it off. You're going to be okay. And and if you believe that, and if the pat on the back was enough, that's good. But if you have literally imagined that you are apart from the universe, and again, these are often people with a strong moral compass, many of whom are spiritual leaders who feel, and this is a quote from so many of them, of course, I love God and believe in him or the Buddha nature or what have you, but it's my job to carry out my part of the universal work. I, do, I would hate to bother Divine Mother with my problems. My job is to do my part of it, and she does her part. Can you imagine the, such a mental degree of separation? And here I'm talking about religious leaders who talk about how they need to be apart from God or don't want to bother the divine. I mean, that's kind of out there, right?
2: That's kind of interesting. I need to be apart from the divine to do the work of the divine. How do you do the work of the divine if you're apart from the divine?
1: Yeah, not only that, but everybody else is a slacker because they're all expecting help from the universe. <laughs> and, and I can only say this with with such scorn, because I know this thought.
2: Yeah, you know it from the inside.
1: I know this thought from the inside. I know what these people are saying. I can. They sometimes say, "You put it into words better than I could have." I say, "Yeah," because I lived it a little longer than you. <laughs>
2: You know, this helps make some sense. Uh, our listeners don't know this, but they're about to know this that that JJ and I have actually had an email conversation going for probably 3 weeks or so now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's been a delightful conversation. And and so some of this I've heard before in the conversation via the email. And so often You'll write something and I'll go, I couldn't, I have no idea how I'll say this to my patients, right? I can kind of follow what you're talking about. It's like, how do I say it in my clinic? I ain't got a clue. And yet there's a certain sensibility in reading your work. I go, yeah, I I get it, but I don't know if I can quite do that. And so hearing that you know this from the inside because you've experienced this, I go, ah, no wonder she can talk that way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So I want to say if anyone gets hold of my earlier editions of my book on recovering from Parkinson's, I never mentioned my own case until the most recent edition, the one that came out in, I think it was 2012. That's the first one where I decided to make a clean breast of it and kind of admit how I got there. So just mentioning that in case you're reading one of the older books, yeah. you'll get one of the new ones. Available free online.
2: Available free online. And I'll have a link to it on the show notes page. Okay. So any of, anyone listening right now, just go to the show notes page and, and click. Mm-hmm. You'll have it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to shift this for just a moment. Okay. Part of what I did read in your book is that, that there's an issue in working with people who are on the medications.
1: Yes. A person who's taken the medication for more than three weeks, let me clarify, who has taken dopamine-enhancing medications for more than three weeks probably already has brain damage and will need to take the medication and they will be much safer taking it if they still have Parkinson's. Uh, There's a book available for free on the website, it's called Medications of Parkinson's or Once Upon a Pill and it explains with enormous detail the horrible, the hideous disasters including psychoses and death that occurred in people Who tried to recover and who some of them succeeded, who had a history of taking dopamine enhancing medications. I will not work with anyone. Actually, since I'm semi retired, I don't, it's sort of moot because I'm not working with anyone anyway. Right now, I'm working on my writing. Um, But anyone with uh, conscience will not encourage a person to try to recover from Parkinson's. If they've been taking the medication for a significant period, there are some drugs like amantadine that actually elevate adrenaline levels rather than dopamine levels, and of course that's fine. But if you're using one of the MAO inhibitors of any kind, or if you're using the drugs that use L-dopa as part of the drug, uh, those are dopamine enhancing medications. And macuna piriens is an herbal that also includes dopamine in it, and I. It's a bad idea. Read my book. Decide for yourself. I can't tell anyone what to do with regard to, A, you're not my patient because this is a podcast. B, it's about pharmaceutical drugs, and I am not licensed to discuss that. It's beyond the scope of my practice. That's why I put it in a book. Read the book. Okay. <laughs> do you hear years of experience there?
2: Well, I, you know, like you, I'm, I, I'm here to help. And uh, you know, part of the of doing this podcast is getting information to people. So
1: mm-hmm.
2: I, I I think I'm just trying to sort this out for myself here. Let me just make sure I'm correct. If if someone has Parkinson's or the, the, the symptoms of Parkinson's, they haven't taken the drugs and then recovery there's a method to this. Mm. If someone has been taking the drugs, am I hearing correctly that it would be dangerous to attempt to recover from Parkinson's? Yes. Yes. That's, oh, oh boy, wow.
1: Right. It was just the sheerest great luck, if you believe in luck, and I'm doing air quotes around that word, that my first three patients were not taking medication. And also that none of them had the same kind of uh, personality where they were locked into dissociation. I happen to uh, be have a lot of, contact in the music community here and my first three patients were all in that music community they weren't taking medication and they were all very much able to access parasympathetic mode they weren't dissociated from their emotions Uh, they um, or in that neurological state they only had the foot injury and it was when I started moving out into the broader world of Parkinson's and came up against medicated patients and the patients who were in lockdown mentally that all these dangers arose so it was nice because having the first few successes certainly piqued my curiosity and then after that slowly more and more craziness showed up
2: the universe is often quite generous in those Mm. first initial glimpses it's sometimes called beginner's luck Mm. Um, (laughs) sometimes sometimes we get a glimpse right and then and then we get to go spend the next several decades sorting it out yeah Again, I know you're not a, a Western-trained physician. Pharmacology is not your expertise.
1: Well, actually, I've got
2: some... Intelli-
1: some I have a little bit of knowledge you in that. You have a here. bit of
2: knowledge in that. But just, I'm, just, I'm just putting the, the disclaimers in here.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I am not a prescribing physician.
2: What I'm curious to know, because it sounds like you have worked with people that were on the medications and and attempting to help them recover, why is it dangerous? What do you see happening?
1: As I said, death and psychotic breaks.
2: Death and psychotic breaks.
1: Yeah. The book goes into enormous details, the chemistry and what's happening there. Remember, these people are taking drugs that are way stronger than cocaine, methamphetamine, opiates.
2: The very things that usually we use to stimulate that dopamine experience.
1: To elevate the dopamine experience in the brain for a very short time. And these people are taking drugs that put straight dopamine, washing through the brain at enormous levels, at levels the brain cannot take. And so cell death and metabolic changes start very soon, within a matter of weeks. And then if you try to go back on that.
2: There's just no going back from that.
1: There's no going back.
2: Sometimes you can go, yeah, there's no going back from that. Okay. Uh, well, that is sobering.
1: I don't want to end on this note. So no, that's no, I,
2: I, I don't either. Um, I absolutely don't. And, you know, I want to get the full sense of, of you know, a, a fuller sense of the work that you're doing, the possible benefits, the, you know, and, and the dangers. So So tell us more about how people can recover and, and how they can recover working on their connection with with being connected to this amazing world and and if there are people family members and such you you you're talking about this issue with the electricity the the chi whatever you want to call it running incorrectly how you don't even need to see a professional to have that shift can you talk to us a bit about that
1: This is something that I've been developing and working on a lot in the last year. It's not published in any book, so if I die before I get this published, I would love it this information to be available somewhere. And I am putting this burden directly on your shoulders, Michael, just so you know. So here's what I'm going to say. What I've come up with, and I haven't written this up yet, but I've sent out information about this to various people with Parkinson's on emails and heard back from them. What it turns out a person needs to do to recover from Parkinson's and to turn off this dissociation, the first thing they need to do is to think of something that they might be willing to trust. It could be nature, the sun, God, divine mother, a saint or sage, a late grandmother. I don't care. But there needs to be someone outside yourself that is truly beneficent who has your best interests always at the core, and you need to start talking to this person. People with Parkinson's feel very awkward about this. Actually, the ones who recover quickly, and what, this is so cool, I was trying to figure out what's the difference between those people who get it and recover and those who don't, and going back through my notes of every single person who had the recovery, and the recovery is very fast, it's almost instantaneous. Uh, Of course, there's sequelae that's painful as you get feeling back in your skin and stuff. But um, the actual turning off the dissociated state was always done while people were having a vigorous discussion or even argument with this outside point of reference. And everyone who had successfully done it, something that got past me in all my years of research, were people... Who had a history of doing this. So for whatever reason, in their own personal, deeply personal version of spirituality, they included talking to God. So what turns out, the people who have struggled the longest and they just can't get there or they feel like they've recovered and then the next time somebody says something negative, boom, the Parkinson's is back. These tend to be people who have never developed the habit of talking outside themselves to something beneficent instead they always are talking to themselves even if they're talking to another human being their real voice is talking to themselves saying, wow do you think they're getting me how am I coming across how is this being perceived even as they're talking outwardly their primary conversation is with themselves so the first thing that has to happen is you have to find someone or something that you'd be willing to talk with all the time. Like, they're in the background. Like, you don't go outside anymore and say, it's a nice day. You go outside and you say, you are a nice day. That level of talking outside. A bird flies by, you don't say, you're. it's a pretty bird, you say, thank you. You see what I'm saying? You are literally conversing outside yourself. Because the what you are needing to do is diminish that sense of separation between self and other. Only so will you be able eventually to feel safe enough that when you are shaking, you'll be able to honestly look at yourself and say, wow, I'm shaking. Do I need to be shaking? Anyway, so this can take months. A person might do this for six months, nine months, or a week, or two days. But at some point, they need to start to feel that someone is listening.
2: And that they're connected to something bigger
1: something is listening and at some point that something is talking back or is having some sense of communication you feel like there's a conversation then when you get to that point you can start the next technique what well, no back up that's not even the technique then comes an assessment which is you need to imagine that there's a current of energy in your spine, the dew channel. It's just under the surface of the skin, about a sixteenth of an inch, it runs from the coccyx up to the neck. That's one option. That's, the, that's how the current runs. It's like a standing wave between the coccyx and the base of the neck, and the current isn't really going anywhere. It's just kind of going back and forth. Uh, that's what happens in severe shock. We learned that in Chinese medicine, the dew can be a reservoir. In a whole system in which everything's supposed to run like a river, you better believe that if anything is turning into a reservoir, that's trouble. Mm. So when a person's in shock, that's a standing wave. When a person's not in shock, that channel is always running up the back, into the spine of the neck, the neck bones, cervical vertebrae, into the brain, up the brain stem, and it arcs forward, hitting the thalamus, the striatum, and then all the way into the frontal lobe and emerging from the head at the point between the eyebrows, what many religions call the third eye, what Christ called the single eye. So this is the assessment. The patient has to decide whether or not it feels more normal or more safe or easier to have the energy in their back standing still or flowing up from the coccyx, up into the brain and out through the third eye. If they feel safer or more natural with it standing still, that person is in some degree of shock. They might not think they're in shock, but their body is behaving as if they are in shock. That's an assessment tool. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And I've tried for about a year getting people to try and then force it. If it's stuck, make it go well it turns out not one person had good luck with that but that's the nature of research but what here's what it turns out does work so now you've established a relationship with somebody outside yourself you've already assessed that energy in your spine and you can see that it would rather stay in the shock position so then you have to do this imagine that you're shaking now, if you're already tremoring great but feel it all the way into your bones if you're not physically tremoring and depending on who you read, between 15 to 35% of people with Parkinson's don't have the tremor. So, um, So imagine you're shaking all the way down. Every cell of your body is just trembling in fear or cold or just trembling. And then say to your outside relationship, look, I'm shaking. You say it silently. You don't have to say it out loud. Then you say to your friend. I don't think we need to be shaking anymore, comma, after all. The after all is very important because everyone who has recovered has said to me in the next week without knowing that this was a commonality, well, it's not like something was going to happen after all. It's really weird. It's almost like the, the consciousness is saying, "We thought it was a problem, but we've changed our mind." So, So what you say, again, you've already said to your friend, look, we're shaking. You look at the shaking. Then you say to your friend, I don't think we need to be shaking anymore after all. Then you breathe in, you breathe out, and you let a shiver go down your spine. Now, if you've got Parkinson's, that first shiver, and maybe the first 100 shivers, is not going to be very convincing. And you might feel like what you're really doing is saying they're going, Shiver, what does she mean, have a shiver go down the spine? But that's okay. Do it at least 10 times on your first attempt, and then see if the energy in your spine is willing to move a little higher than before. It might not be, but don't worry about it. And then the next day, you've got some time, do it again. And remember, you're still developing this conversation. You're still talking to the other as much as possible. And then you do this, and you do this, as many times as you need to before some part of your brain starts getting a little current going through, which will allow you to say with more conviction, I don't think I need to be shaking anymore. After all. After, and comma, after all. yeah. And then you run into the patients who say, well, wait, I can't ever get over this until my mom understands what it is she did to me or my uncle or my father, and I go, you know, great, that's cool. If you want to have Parkinson's to blame somebody else for doing something that you didn't like, that's great, but then I can't help you. Again, this is really a do-it-yourself project. And part of the talking to somebody else outside is it enables you to get that bigger picture and maybe say, okay, mom did her best. My uncle didn't do his best. He was a genuine jerk, but whatever. I don't want to give him rent, free rent in my brain anymore. So, And you need a friend to be able to make those changes in your attitudes. So, So this isn't necessarily an overnight thing. The odd thing is when you suddenly get to the point where the energy is running in your brain all the time and you're feeling really good and you're talking to your friend, at some point what happens is a spontaneous... Knockdown, drag-out confrontation where you're either crying at God and apologizing or yelling at him or yelling at your own soul, damn it, I don't want to do this. And it's very interesting and it's very personal and you can't predict how it will go for anyone. But the person goes through these steps and then the next thing they think is, oh, no, the Parkinson's is gone. And it's not even so much that the symptoms are gone. But there's a joy flooding through the body and a lightness and a sickening realization that you were doing this to yourself and the realization that you never want to do that again and that that whole universe was right there with you the whole time you were being so isolated and sulking and suddenly... You realize you don't want to do that anymore. And the universe is still there. And it's so happy for you. And it was happy for you right along. And it will always be there. And in that sense, whether pain comes and goes, and life itself comes and goes, you are never alone. And you are always safe.
2: I think uh, this is a good place to end this one. I have, I have some more to the discussion that I'd love to have it. And let's maybe do this as a part two. This is a lovely place to end it for now. I am so appreciative of the time that you've taken today and appreciative of your work. It's given me some tools that I can hopefully help people. And, And you have given the world some tools that they can go help themselves. So deep gratitude and thank you for all of that. Thanks again for being on the show.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes Review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.